William Blake uh, lived at a time of tumult and transition, as he certainly uh, did, the French Revolution being a major point of punctuation in his uh, life and, and uh, thought. We, as we move into the Victorian age, we are moving into a period of, on the surface at least, uh, considerably greater social and cultural stability. In fact, I would make a comparison, remembering that all comparisons of this sort are dubious if not spurious, but I would make a comparison uh, with our own time in this country. That is, following the defeat of Napoleon, who had been the great uh, monster and boogeyman of European history, that monster thrown up by the French uh, Revolution, the final act of the French Revolution, with his defeat largely at uh, British hands, at uh, uh, Waterloo, uh, and with the reactionary political settlement that came out of, uh, uh, out of that, uh, England uh, emerged quite uh, obviously as the most powerful uh, nation uh, in England. Powerful both uh, politically, militarily, in terms of its far-flung uh, empire, but above all in monetary and in industrial terms. It was a very, they were very rich, is basically the way I would put it. And in the period from 1830 to 1880, they got only richer. That's one of the parallels that I see uh, with our uh, own time. The other being that they felt they were now free <clears throat> of the kind of external enemy that had uh, given them uh, a great fright over a period of two or three uh, decades. I would draw a parallel uh, in that instance with the uh, end of the uh, end of the Cold War. I'm afraid that parallels are going to end at this point because the, what the Victorian reaction to this situation was was one of the most extraordinary uh, cultural outpourings uh, in the history of humanity. That is the achievement in England, in the visual arts, in music, uh, in literature, in architecture, in science, and in industrial development in this period, roughly 1830 to 1880, uh, was truly fantastic. Uh, I keep waiting for the great uh, poets, American poets, to start riding the wave of e-commerce, but I haven't uh, seen that happen yet. We may need uh, a little more, uh, a little more uh, time. <clears throat> now, I'm feeling a little evangelical, not merely because of the subject of our uh, course, but of, because of my particular interest in the poet whom I want to present to you uh, today, uh, Christina Rossetti. I think that she is perhaps the greatest, one of the, let's not say the greatest, one of the greatest uh, religious poets uh, of the English uh, language. And this fact has been obscured uh, by various things. One of the things it's been obscured by is Christina Rossetti. She is her own uh, worst enemy, and you can see a certain sort of almost definitional Victorian sentimentality in, uh, in, in, in her uh, poetry. But she also is one of those many Victorian women who was obscured by more uh, famous uh, male uh, relatives or associates, uh, in this case uh, her brother Dante, Dante uh, Gabriel uh, Rossetti. Now, if I can wax autobiographical for a, a moment, I'll try to explain how I, as a medievalist, have developed an interest in 19th century uh, British literature. Some of you know, I think, that I am a printer. That is, I run a private, small uh, private press. I'm interested in the antique techniques of printing, uh, letterpress printing uh, on the Gutenberg model using letter, uh, using movable type where you put the type together in a type stick. And so most of you are of an age where you probably 
had a, a shop course in which you could choose either wood shop, metal shop, or uh, uh, print shop, and maybe some of you did the, uh, the, the print shop. Well, <clears throat> many years ago, in fact, to be specific, in 1975, I was in the office of one of my very distinguished colleagues, a name that will be known to everyone here, and some of you will have known him personally. I refer to Carlos Baker, the former chairman of our department and a great student of, of uh, romantic literature, among other things. He's now uh, dead, of course. But Carlos was very famous. He'd fairly recently finished the great Hemingway biography that was the capstone of his career. And ordinarily, just of an ordinary day, uh, he would get about 50 or 60 pieces of mail, most of it sort of fan mail. And I was in talking with him in his office, and he was casually going through his mail. I say he had, he showed considerable class in doing this, incidentally. He would pick up a piece of mail, mainly unopened, kind of look at it, and depending on what he thought of the envelope, thought threw it in the, uh, in the, in the, in the wastebasket. And uh, there was one of these that I saw flip into the wastebasket that I was quite sure had been printed in letterpress. This would have been, you know, fairly un unusual. So I dived into the wastebasket uh, after it with his permission. And it was an application for what was called the visiting uh, scholar at the William Morris Center in London. And what this allowed you to do, well, the requirements of it were that you had to be a great expert on 19th century culture and literature, that you would be prepared to give a series of eight seminars on William Morris uh, and his circle, and that you would allow yourself to live in William Morris's house, Kelmscott House, uh, uh, down uh, on the Thames River in Hammersmith. and. The deadline was two days away. And in a moment of whimsy, I put together a, an application uh, uh, for this in which I said I was going to work on Victorian uh, medievalism and in particular that I was interested in some of the books that had been, some of the medieval books that had been uh, published by the Kelmscott Press, which I'll, uh, I'll, I'll mention in, in, in a moment. Now, it was my good luck, apparently, that every other invitation had been thrown into the wastebasket without being opened and without being retrieved, because with absolutely no uh, credentials at all, I won this award, okay? <laughs> now, that was the good news. I now have to tell you the bad news. Uh, William Morris had two houses that were called Kelmscott House, the, the very fancy one that all the books are written about, of course, is the one up in Oxfordshire. Uh, Kelmscott House uh, in Hammersmith, on the up Upper Mall in Hammersmith, was indeed an absolutely beautiful Georgian house. It, it had belonged, incidentally. It's one of the few, if you go to London, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with these blue and white plaques that are on the building everywhere. You know, here the uh, such and such virus was uh, isolated. George Eliot blew her nose here, this kind of thing. Well, uh, Kelmscott House is absolutely covered with these blue and white plaques because almost everybody that you've ever thought of lived there at some point. But it belonged to George MacDonald before it belonged to uh, William Morris. Someone was asking me about George MacDonald last night. He's one of the authors that Uli Knopfelmacher lectures on uh, in his course. It was in a state of, I have to say, very considerable uh, disrepair. Uh, there were things like live electric wires that had come out of the walls and that were sort of lying around. I had young children at the time. So this was a, a, a bit of an adventure. But we had, a great, uh, we had a great time. It was the bicentennial year, 1976, 1977, that I was there. And of course, I had to work up this course uh, on, uh, uh, on William Morris. So I became quite familiar with some of the major intellectual background of the uh, 19th century, and it is that uh, it was in the course of this work that I rediscovered, I'd read a bit of Christina Rossetti as a graduate student, of course, but I sort of re uh, rediscovered 
uh, Christina Rizzetti. Let's look at her notes, uh, her, her dates for just a minute. They're on the upper left-hand side of the, of the uh, handout. <clears throat> the date that I've chosen for the beginning of this glorious Victorian age, 1830, uh, is fairly arbitrary. It's very close to the date that is usually taken to be the end of the Romantic movement, which is 1832. I can't remember why it's 1832. It's the death of Goethe and about five other important things, but it's a transitional moment and certainly the moment of the emergence of uh, this Victorian uh, self-confidence. Self uh, of course, it's the accession of Victoria. That's the that's one of the points. And she lives for the, uh, lives out the rest of the century. So she's a thoroughly 19th century uh, figure. Her major books uh, are a still charming uh, secular series of, of, of very witty, playful uh, poems called The Goblin Market. Some of you may be familiar uh, with that. Her first book published in 1862 when she was not actually all that young, uh, in her uh, 30s, and in good Victorian fashion, she had to publish it under a pseudonym. She did not choose a male name, however, the way that uh, George Eliot had done, nor simply an ambiguous series of uh, initials, the way the Bronte sisters uh, did, she identified herself as a woman, Ellen, Alain, and the little joke or play uh, in there, the doubling, is almost prophetic of one aspect of her art. As I'm going to try to show you, she is very interested in the double vision, uh, and many of her poems are paired poems. Last night I talked about two sets of poems by Blake, the uh, uh, lamb poems and, and the, the Holy Thursday poems and, and the chimney sweeper poems. Th those are not formally written as, po as, as uh, paired poems. Uh, Christine Rossetti's uh, are, and her other books uh, are, uh, are uh, listed uh, here. Now, the two great influences, obviously, in her uh, life uh, came out of two important uh, movements of the Victorian age. One was in the field of religion and the other was in the field of art and literature. Uh, what I'm referring to in the field of religion, of course, is the so-called uh, Oxford movement. Let's go back in our imaginations for a minute to that tumultuous 17th century where we saw these wonderful Anglican poets, uh, Herbert, uh, uh, Dunn, uh, and uh, so on. Uh, it produces the great English epic, namely uh, John Milton's uh, Paradise Lost, by an author who's very much involved in the political upheavals in the Civil War of the 17th century. That century was absolutely exhausting to Englishmen from the religious point of view. In fact, there's a certain way in which the 17th century throughout Europe, it seems to me, exhausted the religious uh, energies of uh, Christendom and all the strife, warfare, uh, so forth and uh, so on. And the establishment that emerged uh, in the 18th century uh, in England was uh, Christian indeed founded in the established uh, Anglican church, uh, but a very low church, uh, not making any uh, particular claims for uh, the importance of organized religion. Now, we've seen some great religious writers coming out of the uh, 18th century, especially in the field of uh, hymnody, but I would point to someone like Samuel Johnson probably the greatest uh, literary man of letters of the 18th century. He was a very serious theological thinker and has, he wrote a number of, uh, of fairly impressive uh, r religious uh, poems, uh, but they don't uh, have that grounding in lived liturgical life that gives such a bite to uh, Dunn 
uh, or uh, George uh, or, or George Herbert. You see in the Holy Thursday poems of Blake last night, he's trying to invoke that in some way by invoking these ceremonies, these secular ceremonies uh, of Holy Thursday. There's a great uh, writer named Lecky. You may, some of you may be familiar with him, one of these great Victorian uh, polymaths, famous for his book called The History of European Morals, a, uh, a uh, secular, skeptical uh, Victorian uh, uh, rationalist. He also wrote the greatest history of the 18th century in England, about an eight-volume work. And what he says about the Church of England is this. He said that by the year 1780, all right-thinking people in England recognized the Church for what it was and should be, namely an admirable adjunct to the police force. And uh, that is more or less uh, sums it up, that is, that... uh, uh, that uh, Christianity is uh, pretty useful for uh, keeping people in its uh, place. This goes, uh, this explains in large measure, I think, the explicitly anti-Christian agenda of the French uh, Revolution, in addition to the uh, intellectual roots in, in, in Voltaire and uh, uh, so on. Uh, if you've read Tom Jones, and I hope you have, or some other uh, good 18th century uh, novels, you will have run into the typical 18th century uh, English uh, clergyman who spent more time uh, hunting foxes, or in the uh, case of Parson Trollber, raising hogs, uh, than he did in preparing uh, sermons or ministering uh, to uh, to, to his flock. Now, as part of the reaction... As part of the reaction to uh, the uh, Napoleonic uh, upheavals and the defeat of uh, Napoleon uh, in 1815, there were uh, a number of uh, more or less uh, formal uh, conservative uh, intellectual movements in art, uh, in literature, but also uh, in uh, religion and a series of young Anglican uh, clergymen, many of whom, though not all of whom, were associated with Oxford University, came to be thought of as the so-called Oxford Group uh, and participated uh, in what we now call the Oxford Movement. We date this movement quite specifically from the year 1833 when one of them, preached a famous sermon, the title of which was National Apostasy. Now, the gist of this sermon was this. Uh, The preacher looked back at the glorious history of England in the Middle Ages and uh, the Renaissance in the the 17th uh, century. He pointed to the beautiful surviving Gothic cathedrals and parish churches uh, of, uh, uh, of England And he said that this modern Erastian uh, church of ours that is simply really, uh, in in effect, a a branch of the the civil service has lost its uh, religious vocation and its religious religious mission. And uh, there was an attempt to revive ancient forms of worship, that is to say uh, the liturgy, Uh, especially centered in the uh, Eucharist or the communion service, uh, which began to be called the Mass again. If you go back to the first Anglican prayer book, the first Protestant prayer book, in that prayer book, the communion service is called the Mass. The service of the Lord's Supper, commonly called the uh, Mass. But uh, among, of course, the other uh, great movements of the uh, early uh, 19th century was a movement for the relaxation of the stringent uh, imperial policies in Ireland. The Irish were Roman Catholics, and this this movement came to be thought of as a movement for so-called Catholic emancipation. And from a quite early time, the Oxford movement was viewed 
suspiciously by a certain part of the British um, intelligentsia anyway, as a kind of crypto-Catholic uh, uh, movement. And indeed, some of the most famous leaders of the Oxford movement in the Church of England became Roman Catholics. In fact, about half of them did, including the most famous of them at all, of all, John Henry Cardinal Newman. Cardinal Newman started out as an Anglican priest in the little village of Littlemore, not far from uh, uh, Oxford, and became convinced by his own researches that the English church had fatally strayed from its uh, Catholic, uh, uh, Catholic roots and could not be uh, reformed. Now, others didn't go as far as... Uh, did not go as far as uh, uh, Newman did, and there are three of them that I want to mention in particular. John Keeble, who had been in on the beginning uh, of this uh, movement in 1833 with the, uh, the sermon on uh, national uh, apostasy. Keeble became the great poet of the Oxford movement. He is the author of a book called The Christian Year, which has several poems for each day of the year, but they're built around the liturgical calendar. Uh, if any of you are, as I am, an aficionado of secondhand bookstores, uh, you have run into the Christian year a hundred times during your career. It must have been unbelievably popular, both in England and in the United States, uh, in the mid-Victorian period. It's usually, uh, it usually has one of these kind of hideous, multicolored, uh, Buckram bindings that the that the uh, Vic Victorians uh, liked. Keeble College at Oxford University is, of course, named for John uh, uh, Keeble. The great theologian of the Oxford movement was uh, uh, E.B. Pusey. Pusey is also memorialized today in Oxford uh, in Pusey House, which is the sort of high church Anglican uh, chaplaincy uh, there. But the best seller, the best seller of all times in the Victorian age was a woman you may never have heard of, is Charlotte Mary Young, a household word in your household? Well, she ought to be. She wrote about 50 uh, Anglo-Catholic novels. You would have thought maybe that one Anglo-Catholic novel is uh, enough, but she did uh, 50 of them. Uh, she was a succé-fou uh, everybody was reading uh, uh, Charlotte uh, Young, and her books are pro profusely available in secondhand bookstores uh, uh, as, as well. Now, one of the things that the Oxford reformers did was to make a renovation within the Anglican Church of the formal religious life. Remember that Henry VIII in the 16th century had confiscated all, had suppressed all the monasteries and nunneries, taken all their property and turned them into uh, uh, royal automobile club hotels, mainly, now you travel around to, uh, uh, England, um, or given them to his uh, best friends, uh, that, that sort of thing. So you, st you, you found an emergence uh, of, uh, uh, of the religious life, that is, orders of monks and nuns. Now remember that Britain, since the time of Queen Elizabeth, had been fanatically, one strain of, of, of British thought, is fanatically anti-Catholic, anti-Roman uh, Catholic. Uh, and this uh, horrified, uh, you know, the, this is where you get all these books about immured nuns and so on, and we'll see that uh, Christina Rossetti uh, writes uh, about them. Now, about the same time, that people were reinventing a Gothic religion to practice in their Gothic churches that were conveniently uh, still uh, hanging around. There were a bunch of artistic thinkers who were saying more or less the same thing. Have you ever wondered, uh, I wonder uh, every now and then, why in the 1920s the trustees of Princeton University, pinch penny Presbyterians, to a man would have spent all that money building uh, these neo-Gothic buildings uh, up where the old commons was and so on. Why do we have in the center of our uh, uh, campus 
a pretty good imitation of a late 14th or early 15th century French Gothic cathedral. The reason is, and it's not entirely a facetious one, the reason is that we associate with those architectural forms a certain high seriousness of purpose. I'm the chief marshal of the university, so I have to think about all this all the time. I mean, at, at, at graduation, we run around wearing pumpkin suits, square hats, and so on, carrying these absurd uh, sort of uh, ceremonial uh, medieval weapons. What is it we're doing? We are trying to be in a tradition that uh, can recapture the high seriousness that goes with those buildings and with those forms. And so the great Gothic revival under the famous architect Pugin and, uh, and others was, uh, was devoted to that. But you had also painters uh, and uh, uh, architects and poets who were coming to more or less the same uh, conclusion. The movement that we associate uh, that we associate with the artists is usually called the pre-Raphaelite movement. Now, why is this? You probably know the painter Raphael. They looked at Raphael and they said, there it is. There is the beginning of the rot right there. It's all downhill. You know, give Raphael an inch and the next thing you'll have is Rubens. You know, and you'll have all these good of so, so what we want are some nice... Uh, ethereal, ascetic angels. I'm going to show you a Burne Jones angel over in the, uh, over in our uh, art museum uh, in uh, a moment. And great theoreticians, like uh, like John Ruskin, uh, author of the the Stones of Venice and the Lamps of Architecture and so on. A really great thinker, crazy, screwed up guy at the personal level, but a terrific uh, th thinker. Gave. Uh, sort of theoretical uh, basis uh, for th uh, this. Edward Burne-Jones, a marvelous uh, painter, was involved uh, in the uh, movement, as was Christina Rossetti's brother, Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Now, we live in this multicultural scene where, uh, you know, we're, we're used to running into people whose last names we have difficulty pronouncing, especially the Polish ones, as far as I'm concerned. But in England, to have an Italian father was uh, pretty racy stuff. The father of Christina Rossetti and Dante Gabriel Rossetti was one of these marvelously romantic pre-Garibaldi uh, Italian patriot figures. He rode around on a horse trying to unify uh, Italy, and when that didn't work, he came and lived in London and wrote, wrote, wrote about it. Uh, so he, Christina Rossetti uh, was half uh, it, Italian. I, I, have, have, uh, I don't know if you're re readers of Ian uh, e. e. Forster. He, if there's anything that uh, the traditional Englishman suspects more than a Roman Catholic. It is an Italian uh, Roman Catholic. So there's some pretty uh, r r racy stuff that is, uh, that, that is, uh, uh, that, that is here. And uh, Dante uh, Gabriel Rossetti is both a famous painter, uh, as you know, and uh, a, an excellent poet. It's quite unfair, however, that when you pick up the Oxford Book of English Verse, there are twice or three times as many pages devoted to Dante, Gabriel Rossetti, as to Christina Rossetti. And at least I'm going to try to convince you of that. Uh, in, uh, I'm going to try to convince you of, of that in a, in a minute. The most interesting of these people in one way was William Morris. Uh, William Morris, who, brought, uh, who was not a particularly religious figure and, in fact, eventually abandoned Christianity uh, altogether, all but who united the, what I would call the Anglo-Catholic uh, vision of a uh, pacific uh, Christian uh, uh, state with that uh, social activism that we saw in the poems of, uh, that we saw in the poems of uh, Blake last night. Uh, William Morris was a socialist. He was, in fact, one of the founding members of the British Communist Party. This was... Uh, yeah. That was the name of the party. It, it, it eventually got thrown out by the common turn. It wasn't communist enough, but he was uh, a radical political thinker and a radical social 
uh, uh, thinker, and this is the strange confluence of forces out of which someone like Christina Rossetti comes. On the one hand, she is profoundly dull, conservative, so on, in all her biographical details, uh, but at the artistic uh, uh, level, very revolutionary uh, and, I think, uh, experimental. So what I'd like to do in the, uh, in the uh, rest of this uh, lecture is to try to work my way through a few of these uh, poems. Now, the numbers on the poems are not, I'm not going to deal with them in sequential order. I put them on the page as best I could to get uh, all 12 poems on the page, so I will just refer to them by, uh, refer to them by numbers. Uh, there are six on the front, and that there are six on the back. Now, if you were a woman poet in 1850 or 1860, uh, what models uh, did you uh, have? The great contemporary woman poet, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, now called by scholars Barrett. <laughs> she called herself Mrs. Browning, but we have to call her uh, Barrett, uh, 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 she had not yet emerged uh, as, as fully as we, uh, as we r r recognize her now. And the models that a Victorian woman uh, poet had were mainly people I think most of you will never have heard of, Mrs. Hemans and uh, people of, uh, uh, of this sort. And it's quite interesting to me to see uh, Christina Brosetti uh, turning, uh, turning back to the 17th century. I think this is an aspect of her that has not been uh, enough realized. Look at a little poem called Good Friday, for example. I've chosen this one because we had you read uh, Dunn's Good Friday writing westward. Am I a stone and not a sheep that I can stand, O Christ, beneath thy cross to number drop by drop, drop thy blood's slow loss and yet not weep? Not so those women loved who with exceeding grief lamented thee not so fallen Peter weeping, weeping bitterly, not so the thief was moved, not so the sun and moon which hid their faces in a starless sky, a horror of great darkness at broad noon, I, only I. Yet give not o'er, but seek thy sheep true shepherd of the flock, greater than Moses, turn and look once more, and smite a rock. Now, uh, I said a minute ago that Christina Rossetti is her own worst enemy, uh, in a way, and it's quite easy to see what's wrong uh, with certain aspects of the diction uh, of this, uh, of, of this uh, p poem. It's a little harder to see what is so brilliantly right about it. In the first place, to ride my hobby horse a half mile further, you do notice that the subject matter is exodal. Uh, that is to say, uh, the striking of the rock that is referred to at the end uh, alludes to Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They have nothing to eat or drink. Manna falls from the heaven, and Moses takes Aaron's rod and strikes from the flinty rock a stream uh, of uh, a stream of pure water, but there's a lot of done here too, and handled it seems to me very brilliantly. Remember the line in in Dunn, can, where he's saying the same thing: Is it possible for nature to look upon the the death of God in the in the in the crucifixion uh, unmoved? It made your own lieutenant nature shrink is what uh, Dunn uh, said, if you uh, re remember. Not so the sun and moon, which hid their faces in a starless sky, a horror of great darkness at broad noon. I think that's as good as Dunn. <laughs> it's very, and, and she does him one better, in a sense, by saying, I alone of the entire created order am insensate or insensible before this cataclysmic uh, event of the... Uh, of, the, uh, of the of the crucifixion, so uh, there, it seems to me that here the sort of Victorian sentimentality, if we want to call it that, the 
foregrounding of the personal voice of the uh, of, of, of the poet uh, really does uh, pay off. Now, Christina Rossetti is from the last <laughs> the, the uh, uh, last uh, uh, generation, it seems to me, of great English writers who really do know the Bible, and they sort of expect you to know the Bible. <laughs> I guess that's safer than attributing everything to Shakespeare, which is, which, which, which is in the Bible. But look, the reason I raise this is, is look at number four uh, for a, a, a moment. Uh, Who shall deliver me? Now, this is a poem that will make no sense at all if you're unable to fill the second half of the quotation in St. Paul. Excuse me, vast radio audience out in the world at large. I just strayed away from the microphone for a moment, but my keeper has... Has, 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 has recalled me. And damn, I said something really brilliant, but I can't remember what it is now. The title of this poem, Who Shall Deliver Me, um, as I say, will not be very clear unless you're able to fill in the other half of it. It's St. Paul, Who Shall Deliver Me From the Body of This Death? It's really a, one of these bizarre uh, things that uh, has given St. Paul a bad reputation. Uh, as well as the uh, uh, Victorians. And don't worry, I'm going to get into all the death stuff that is so big in Victoriana in just a moment. Who shall deliver me? God strengthen me to bear myself, that heaviest weight of all to bear, inalienable weight of care. All others are outside myself. I lock my door and bar them out. The turmoil, tedium, gadabout. Now there she is. She's really breaking free now from the constraints of Mrs. Hemans. What a great line. Uh, It seems so conventional till you get to gad about. All others are outside myself. I lock my door and bar them out. The turmoil, tedium, gad about. I lock my door upon myself and bar them out. But who shall wail self from myself most loathed of all? If I could once lay down myself and start self-purged upon the race, uh, that all must run, death runs apace. I won't go through the whole poem because we have many uh, others to do. The subject of this poem has been made famous uh, by uh, Peanuts. Uh, we have met the enemy and he is us, uh, is the general subject of the, uh, of, of the poem in a way. Who shall deliver me from the... Um, you don't find poets. Oh, it's Pogo. <laughs> I, I've, I've just made a critical error. I, I, I forgot that I was dealing with an audience that are absolutely up to date on all rock groups and cartoonists. The, uh, the, the penitential uh, suggestion of the, uh, of the poem is probably also one that is uh, foreign to us. I'm trying to remember if I have read a poem written in the last 50 years which is truly self-critical in which the poet is actually saying, you know, I am really pretty much of a scumbag. I can't, you know, it's a, it's a major theme in, in Christian poetry, but I can't remember. But here, here it is uh, in, uh, in, 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 in Christina uh, Rossetti. And, uh, of course, uh, 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 one of the famous lines here is that death runs, uh, death runs uh, apace. Uh, Christina Rossetti had a marvelously tragic, banally tragic Victorian female life. Uh, she was absolutely devoted to her mother. Almost every one of her books is, uh, is dedicated uh, to her uh, mother. Her mother is the subject of one or two of these poems uh, th- that I've given. And she spent her life, most of her life, uh, ministering to her mother uh, when the latter had become an invalid. She did have one brief romance. And uh, the situation is one that could only exist at that moment in mid-Victorian Anglo-Catholicism. She could not marry the man, although she was not married, and he was not married, because he was wavering uh, on the verge of converting to Roman Catholicism. 
And uh, she said, I could not marry a person under those circumstances. And the way he reacted to this great disappointment was to convert to Roman Catholicism. So it's, 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 a, it's a marvelous sort of a, uh, Victorian uh, statement. So a lot of her poetry uh, really is a poetry of renunciation. Uh, and she spends a fair amount of time talking about death. But she talks about death in a highly disciplined way. She's a great master of the sonnet, which is, seems to me, fairly uh, 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 un unusual for a 19th century, uh, 19th century poet. The sonnet being in uh, probably the most uh, severely disciplined poetic mode in uh, English. So take a look at After Death, number five, for a minute. The curtains were half drawn. The floors were, uh, floor was swept and strewn with ashes, with rushes, rosemary, and may, lay thick upon the bed on which I lay, where through the lattice ivy shadow crept. He leaned above me, thinking that I slept and could not hear him, but I heard him say, poor child, poor child. And as he turned away came a deep silence, and I knew he wept. He did not touch the shroud or raise the fold that hid my face, nor take my hand in his, or ruffle the smooth pillows for my head. He did not love me living, but once dead, he pitied me, and very sweet it is to know he still is warm, though I am cold. Now, that's a very remarkable poem, because it's written by a dead person. <laughs> And it's written, if, and at one level, the poem is the most uh, gawkish kind of uh, female uh, adolescent, uh, uh, I'm going to commit suicide and then you're really going to be sorry. You really are going to be sorry. And now I'm dead and you really are sorry. I mean, but that's a, that is a superficial reading, actually, of the poem. The poem is once again based in a, in a, uh, in a biblical story, the raising of Jairus' daughter, if you remember when Jesus comes in to the child and does take her hand and says, maiden, arise. We don't even know who he is. That is, who is this person? Is it the possible lover? Is it the father? Is it the brother? Uh, Dante Gabriel uh, Rossetti. Is it really just that world of flesh and blood that does not have the power to reach out and take the hand and resurrect, uh, resurrect the body. It's a beautiful, uh, a be a beautiful poem. Now, uh, like several other uh, mid-Victorian uh, Anglican uh, ladies, uh, Christina Rossetti had what I might call uh, cloister envy. Uh, she wanted to become a nun. Now, her sister did become a nun. <laughs> By the most remarkable uh, coincidence, about two years ago, I ran into a nun. I didn't, I mean, I met a nun at a cocktail. <laughs> I met a nun at a cocktail party <laughs> who told me that she was from the same order as Christina Rossetti's uh, sister and that Christina Rossetti's sister had left, there, that they had in this convent. Uh, several notebooks that were full of the sisters' uh, poetry. So I hope that some Victorian scholar is, is seeking uh, all, all this out. But the actual historical situation was that Christina Rossetti's sister became a nun, an Anglican nun, of course. And uh, uh, you, you can see uh, Christina uh, sort of uh, dramatizing this in, in, in several of, uh, of, of her poems. One of them, and one of the really interesting ones, is this one called an immurata uh, sister. Uh, immurata means walled in. And I don't think that even in darkest Portugal or Spain or where in the middle of the 19th century they were still walling nuns in. But it's this romantic notion of the religious life taken to its extreme. Life flows to death. We cannot bind that current that it should not flee. Life flows down to death as rivers find the inevitable sea. Listen to the rhythm, incidentally. 
That's as ex that is, in its own way, as experimental as anything in Gerard Manley Hopkins. Life flows down to death. We cannot bind that current that it should not flee. Life flows down to death as rivers find the inevitable sea. It has an extra syllable that you're not re really quite prepared for, but once you see it, it becomes, so to speak, inevitable. It's marvelous. It's a, men work and think, but women feel. And so, for I'm a woman, I, and so I should be glad to die and cease from impotence of zeal and cease from hope and cease from dread and cease from yearning without gain and cease from all this world of pain and be at peace among the dead. Okay, now, it's, one gets tired of this, but let me tell you, you know, every poem of A.E. Hausman is exactly on this theme. Uh, life is a drag and then you die. That's, uh, I mean, that every poem of Hausman's is, is this way. And she's doing something with it much more interesting. Hearts that die by death renew their youth, lightened of this life that doubts and dies, silent and contented while the truth unveiled makes them wise. And it's only at the end of the poem that you realize she's actually not talking about physical death uh, in the poem. She's talking about the death to the world of the Emirata uh, sister. Now the other one, number two, really does have a biographical situation. Her sister is entering the uh, uh, convent. This is from a very long poem, and it's one of her most brilliant poems, the uh, convent uh, 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 sister. Now the other one, number two, really does have a biographical situation. Her sister is entering the uh, uh, convent. This is from a very long poem, and it's one of her most brilliant poems. The uh, convent uh, th threshold really is one of her most brilliant uh, uh, poems, and I wish I could talk about it at, at, at greater length. But it's a dialogue, just as the sonnet after death was in its own, in its own way a kind of a, uh, a, kind of a uh, dialogue. Uh, a dialogue between the sister who is leaving uh, and the sister who is staying. Now, this, this is a hoary tradition in Western literature. There's a famous letter written by Petrarch in the 14th century on his uh, ascent of Mont Ventoux, a big mountain in the south of France, in, in uh, 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 Provence. If you go there today, which I would like to do, uh, but can't, uh, you will find there a plaque that has been raised by the Club Alpiniste de France, saying this is the first act of mountain climbing uh, in world history. But if you go back and read the, the letter that, that uh, Petrarch has written, you will see that it's not about literal mountain climbing. It's about ascent in the spiritual life, and it's a dialogue with his brother Gerard, who had become a, a monk. Well, this is this kind of uh, thing in, in a poem. There's blood between us, love, my love. There's father's blood, there's brother's blood, and blood's a bar I cannot pass. I choose the stairs that mount above, stare after golden skyward stare, to city and to sea of glass. Images, of course, from the book of, the, uh, of Revelation, from the Apocalypse. Uh, th this is the uh, sister who is ascending, and what she's doing is lecturing the poet, uh, Christina Rossetti, who cannot ascend that stair. My lily feet are soiled with mud, with scarlet mud, which tells a tale of hope that was, of guilt that was, of love that shall not yet avail. Alas, my heart, if I could bear my heart, this selfsame stain is there. I seek the sea of glass and fire to wash, wash the spot and burn the snare. Low stairs are meant to lift us higher. Mount with me. Mount the kindlier stair. What a great phrase. But the sister, the earthbound one, the poet, uh, is not going to be able to do that. Your eyes look earthward. Mine look up. I see a far-off city, the far-off city grand, beyond the hills of watered land. And, uh, and so it goes on, but it's a dramatization. It dramatizes the uh, uh, double 
uh, the twin loves, really. This is the uh, Augustinian charity and cupidity, caritas cupiditas, put in a 19th, 19th century uh, 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 guise. I don't, I'm not going to have time to talk about every poem on the back of the sheet, but let's look at one or, or two of them because I promised to try to say something uh, about uh, some of her paired poems. One of her most remarkable poems, which is a secular poem, and I haven't, uh, so I'm not dealing with it here at all, is called uh, Mona Inamorata, a sonnet of sonnets. What she means by a sonnet of sonnets is a collection of 14 sonnets, where each sonnet plays the role of one line in the ordinary uh, sonnet. And uh, what you have uh, in number 10, uh, a double sonnet of sonnets, is 28 poems that are, uh, that are so constructed there. The Mona Inamorata calls upon her very considerable, no her very considerable knowledge of medieval Italian literature that she inherited from her uh, father is a lot of Dante. Each poem begins with a line from Dante, Guido Calvicante, uh, Petrarch, and, uh, and, and so on. But you'll see the technique in the poem called Memory. The Pre-Raphaelites pre made a big hit in, in, in mid-century with the publication of a journal called The Germ. And uh, this is one of the poems that was published in The, uh, in, in the Germ memory, and it comes in these two parts. I nursed it in my bosom while it lived. I hid it in my heart when it was dead. In joy I sat alone. Even so I grieved alone and nothing said. I shut the door to face the naked truth. I stood alone. I faced the truth alone. Stripped bare of self-regard or forms or ruth till first and last were shown. Alpha and Omega again out of the book of Revelation. I took the perfect balance, balances and weighed. No shaking of my hand disturbed the poise. Weighed, found it wanting. Not a word, I said, but silent made my choice. None know the choice I made. I make it still. None know the choice I made and broke my heart, breaking mine idol. I have braced my will once chosen for once my part. I broke it at a blow, I laid it cold, crushed in my deep heart where it used to live. My heart dies inch by inch, the time grows cold, goes old, grows old, in which I grieve. Now, it's not quite clear yet, in fact, it never becomes totally clear what the subject of the poem is, but it's some great loss. We can put it in biographical terms. This is her rejection of erotic poss possibility, possibility of marriage, romance, uh, and it's all been done silently. But the poem is called Memory, and it's called Memory for, uh, for a reason, and she gets to that reason in the second part of the poem. I have a room whereinto no one enters, say I myself alone. There sits a blessed memory on a throne. There my life centers. While winter comes and goes, O oh, tedious comer, and while its nip wind blows, while bloom the bloodless lily and warm rose of lavish summer, if any should force entrance, he might see there one buried, yet not dead, before whose face I no, no, no more bow my head or bend my knee there. But often in my worn life's autumn weather, I watch there with clear eyes and think how it will be in paradise when we're together. So it's a, a, a death, a friend, uh, a relative, uh, a, a lover, a reunion that is now possible only in that sacred cham chamber of the uh, uh, memory, uh, but will be. Uh, consummated in a eschatological moment, and that's a big subject in, in, uh, in, in lots of her uh, poetry. One final one, because I am going to be running out of time. 
uh, let's take a look at number 10, and it is another series of uh, a pair of, uh, a, a, pair of uh, a pair of poems <clears throat> entitled "Later Life." What might later life mean? It, I think all of us in this room. Uh, I'm facing my 64th birthday, and several of you are older than that. Uh, surely know what later life means. Uh, in that sense, but for a religious poet, later life has this eschatological possibility. If you think about the title in another way, later life, it is a postponement of uh, life. This is a big uh, subject in uh, Christina Rosé. So what, the, what is the poem about? Before the mountains were brought forth, before earth and the world were made, then God was God, and God will still be God when flames shall roar round earth and heavens dissolving at his nod. And this God is our God, even while his rod of righteous wrath falls on us smiting sore. And this God is our God forevermore through life, through death, while Claude returns to Claude. For though he slay us, we will trust in him we will flock home to him by divers ways. Yea, though he slay us, we will vaunt his praise, serving and loving with the cherubim, watching and loving with the seraphim, our very selves his praise through endless days. And one sees that it's a catena or chain uh, daisy chain of, of phrases and ideas uh, out of the scriptures, uh, the epistles of Paul and the, uh, the, book of, uh, the book of Job, but it still has some very extraordinary ideas. Watching and loving with the seraphim are very selves his praise through endless days. Um, I, the, in, in poem eight, uh, which I don't have time to talk about, she, she uh, is praising the creator through things created. And here she's saying that the, the greatest praise that she is capable of with regard to the creator is simply to hold forth her self as God's uh, creature. Rend hearts and rend not garments for our sins. Uh, gird sackcloth not on body but on soul, grovel in dust uh, with faces toward the goal, nor won nor neared. He only laughs who wins, not neared the goal, right to the race too late begins or left undone. We have yet uh, to do the whole. The sun is hurrying west and toward the pole where darkness waits for earth with all her kins, but it's the day is waning, life is waning, in a certain sense the age of the world uh, is waning. Let us today, while it is called today, set out if utmost speed may yet avail. The shadows lengthen and the light grows pale, for who through darkness and the shadow of death darkness that may be felt shall find a way blind-eyed, deaf-eared, and choked with failing breath. So again, a very stunning, and in, in, in this case it seems to me uh, pessimistic and, and uh, arresting uh, 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 poem, just as she's one of the last uh, Christian poets who uh, knows the Bible very well, uh, she's one of the last Christian poets who really does believe in hell. <laughs> that is, she has a terror of uh, uh, the afterlife that is that is fully that of, of what you find in in, in Dante uh, Dante Alighieri. Well, I hope uh, I, I think that uh, most of the poet, poets that we've been reading in these in the course are ones that you know something about already. And probably had already read a little bit. I don't. I hope that at least I've been introducing some of you to a new poet, to uh, Christina Rossetti, uh, and that you're now going to take the opportunity 
to go out and uh, read uh, some of our works uh, on her own. But I see that it is 10.15. Uh, I can see that Kathy Doyle is getting very nervous that we move on to the uh, next event uh, on our uh, schedule. And the next event on our schedule is, I believe, questions arising out of this lecture. <laughs> No, no, now you must wait. <laughs> this is just a P.S. Uh, how did her later life end? Boring, boring. <laughs> uh, well, uh, it, I, I, I'm being uh, uh, facile. Unlike her brother, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, she had no public uh, role at all. She was at home with her uh, mother uh, taking care of this invalid uh, mo mother and so on. She led, led, led a hidden life. The poet whom she most resembles, in my opinion, is Emily Dickinson. And there's striking biographical parallels between the two. But she is very churchy. I mean, she's part of this high church uh, movement. So she's thinking lots about sacraments, uh, vestments, uh, altar lights, and all this kind of thing. And, and uh, uh, Emily Dickinson is a is a uh, New England uh, uh, congregationalist who deals only in the realm of pure idea. Uh, surely, I mean, you know, even if you don't have a question, you could fake it <laughs> j j just to make me feel better. You said that she was. You indicated that she was critical of herself. Would you expand yeah. on that a little bit? Well, uh, the w a part of the revival uh, of uh, uh, sort of Catholic thought in the uh, 19th century uh, uh, Church of England uh, dealt with this business of self-examination, going to confession, uh, uh, you know, miserable sinners. We uh, Part of the language of this last poem uh, of course, it comes straight out of the prayer book th that is itself based on biblical verses, rend your hearts and not your garments, rend hearts and rend not garments uh, for our sins. She has the uh, concept of herself as a sinner, that is to say, as uh, someone who is falling short of the glorious expect religious expectation that she has. I think that's what uh, this concept is. I was looking at poem number 11, mm -hmm. if only. Yes. Um, and, and that looks as if actually death is almost a temptation to her at, at, at the beginning of it. Um, I, I, I don't know, at my age, <clears throat> I, I sometimes it expresses my feeling. I don't know if that really was what she was saying in that poem. Um, as if she would love to die, and yet it's her duty to continue to live. I think that's absolutely right. Okay, well, <clears throat> yes, and, and this is for our, uh, uh, those millions of people in our intergalactic uh, audience, and as you listen to this lecture, you will have before you the same handout that I'm referring to here. Uh, and the question has been asked about poem 11, which begins this way, if I might only love my God and die, and the questioner who very astutely says, do we not have here a kind of... Uh, idea of death as temptation would would she not is she not saying uh, I would like to die but I know it's my my duty my burden my responsibility to go on living until I'm called I think that's exactly what the poem is saying and, and that uh, that uh, she uh, frequently says this in her poems now it's a pretty common idea I mean remember it's Keats who says that he's half in love with easeful death uh, the romantic poets, uh, not out of religious ecstasy, but really out of a kind of aesthetic ecstasy, wish they could die uh, upon the moment with no uh, pain, that sound of the nightingale, they, that absolutely sort of uh, perfect uh, uh, moment. And this probably is an element of her thought that is very dated and very uh, Victorian and sort of hard for us to... Uh, to understand, but remember the story that I told you. No, I didn't tell it to you, so you couldn't possibly remember it. <laughs> I will tell it to you now. 
It has to do with Aelred of Rivo, one of the great saints of the uh, 12th uh, century, who lived at Rivo Abbey up in the north uh, of England. It was, it was a great writer uh, and has left a series of books, the most famous of which is called On Spiritual Friendship. Now, these uh, uh, monks of the 12th century in the Cistercian Order spoke Latin. That is to say that for whatever country they came from, the language they used was Latin. He was a Scot, actually. So he had to spend his whole time uh, speaking Latin in the, in the monastery. But his friend Walter Daniel, wrote a, who wrote his life, gives a, a, a thrilling description of the deathbed scene of Aelred of Rivaux. And, and it is this, that what they, they took you to the hospital to die. Incidentally, that's what the word hospital <laughs> means. You have to be careful about this. Uh, the, the, the purpose of the hospital was to provide a place for people to die. So they had a thing in the monastery called the hospital. And when it was clear that you're going to die, they take you there. So they took him there. And they held a candle and a crucifix and a Bible and all the kind of monkish stuff that they were uh, supposed to supposed to do, and then Aelred of Rivo said something, and he said it in the English language, and it was the first time that Aelred of Rivo had ever spoken English, according to uh, Walter Daniel. He said, "For Christ, love, for the love of Christ," in Middle English, <laughs> and uh, it, of course he has to explain why he would do this. Why does he do this remarkable thing? Just as he's about to die, why does he speak English? And Walter Daniel says this, he says, in Latin, that would have been pro amorem, three syllables, Christi, two syllables. It took, would have taken five syllables to say what you could say in English in only three syllables. And Aelred of Rivo was, he says, hovered at that moment, as all of us should be, so anxious to get into the next world that he didn't want to waste his time with two extra syllables. <laughs> now, it sounds like a joke, but it's a marvelous kind of, uh, kind, of kind of story. And this is at least the pose or the, 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 the you know, the mode that the uh, religious, uh, religious poet has. <clears throat> 